Welcome everyone to Yay Live. This is a loyalty podcast for direct-to-consumer brands. We are here to help you navigate the new loyalty playbook to build a long-lasting and successful brand. And in this episode, we are privileged to host Moon Suk Song, CEO and co-founder of Panagora. With a track record spanning over 20 years, Panagora has been dedicated to delivering the ultimate shopping experience for the next generation of brands. And we'll hear more about the remarkable journey from Moon Suk himself later in the episode. So choosing a theme for this episode was challenging. Moon Suk is widely known in the direct-to-consumer space, both in Sweden and abroad, and as an e-commerce guru, we can say, with a lot of industry expertise, we'll narrow down our focus to the importance of crafting a strong brand story that sets you apart from the competition. But with Panagora's presence in Korea and Japan, we'll also delve into Moonsuk's experience in scaling brand globally. So we'll discover how his insights from these markets empower European brands to expand into new territories and conquer the world. So let's extend a warm welcome to Moonsuk. Thank you for joining us today. And to kick things off, please share a bit about yourself and the inspiration behind the creation of Panagora. We started Panagora 2001. It was during the IT crash, and I guess no one really believed in e-commerce. But I was just finished ex- my graduation at the university, and during my time at the university, I run a club, and that how I got connected to sneakers and stuff. So we had like some collabs, like distributing flyers and posters, selling tickets to the club, and they had a logotype on our flyers and stuff like that. So it was an important partner at that time. When the IT crash came, I couldn't really find a job that easily so I just asked SNS if we could do their homepage something like that and they we already have a homepage and it's like maybe an online store but yeah we already have an online store oh really yeah and they had like 20% of their revenue online which was yeah. unique at that time when yeah. everyone else was crashing but we made a pitch and we solved two problems and that was the real-time stock update and the second one is increase efficiency to upload content and they bought the pitch so we got our first e-commerce client so that's so how many were you in the team back then we were uh, three people but basically me and Fredrik my co-founder of Pandora yeah. we did all the work for SNS We just rebuilt the old CMS, basically, and made some integration to a payment service provider and stuff like that. Cool. Which platform were they using back then? We, we built our own. Okay, oh, we, that's, we, that's we, when Edge was born, or? The Panagora E1 was born. I think it was around 2006. And on, on your um, website, I think one like angle of Panagora is really like about helping brands to create the perfect shopping experience, and that is quite bold and ambitious but what does that mean where does it start no but it's a ripoff of a documentary by mclaren actually okay. they have something called the perfect lap so okay. it was inspiring you, know you were to a see. formula one uh, fan no i'm not a formula one fan but it was an interesting documentary about a company like mclaren having an office and have a racing track outside their office okay. and to create a good lap time and improve it it's I think 12% was based on the driver, and then it's a mix of the downforce, what kind of fuel, the engine, the tires, the configuration, everything. They're super data-driven, and you could just see how similar it was when it comes to improve an online store. You have how many people entering the store, you see the conversion rate, yep. you see the order value, yep. you see the returns, and, and so on. And you want to improve that all the time. And if you work with a client for many years, you realize that no matter how hard you try to build a good online experience, there will always be room for improvement. Yeah. So try to build a culture in a company that 
says that we will take all our experience and know-how to make our best right now. But we know that as soon as we see data of what we deployed, yep. we realize something wasn't that good. And we use that data to know where to put our priority and, you know, do changes. So that was the similarity with mm. the Formula One and McLaren team. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think we're all getting obsessed with data and we see the potential you can have actually on inc- improving a different part of the customer experience. But I guess along all these years in e-commerce, you've probably seen that space maturing, you know, help your clients more with more tools and mm. more things available. So can you maybe explain a little bit like how you've seen that, you know, space in your like evolving? How do you help your customer be more data driven? How do you help them concretely with that part? I think. Our group of customers has mostly been startups with no money, really. But they had a passion for the products that they're buying and selling. And they had this entrepreneur energy, like try to find ways to sell the products. And going global with your e-com from day one was super natural for them because they didn't have the money to open physical stores in each country. So I think from our perspective, it was the most natural thing to do with a Swedish startup when you're in a small country like Sweden to just open it in English and sign a contract with, for example, UPS or FedEx and let's start delivering wherever we have a consumer. It was not really like a strategy, it was just make sense because if you don't have money you need to find every possible way to find a customer and working with startups who are very niched like within a certain category like sneakers and stuff is not just Adidas Stan Smith they have all these collectible sneakers reaching sneaker collectors all over the world so it's like a community driven business and if you work with that kind of clients like within streetwear or contemporary fashion or beauty and so on it just made sense for us to always have that global approach from the very start it was just when we start to work with more traditional retail chains in sweden that we realized how hard it was to convince them to go global or even go outside the nordics So I would say that all our clients since 2001 until today had their critical success factor based on having a niche brand and product so they could scale to many markets. That's like the most important growth strategy of everything. More important than beating on price or beating on how large your assortment is or the most innovative acquisition or retention strategy is like find something to sell so you can go global. That's like the critical success factor, I would say, from our perspective. Yeah, very interesting because one thing which we see is that it is very important for brands to have like a powerful and recognizable brand image. Um, And of course, understand that the type of customer who work with you or that you work with them are actually this type of customer who pay a lot of attention from the beginning in the brand but how do you help them like on the you know customer journey online mm. to make sure that the brand is present everywhere and that you don't lose touch with the customer no i mean like i think up to 2003 or 4 we believe that we could be like a standard template for how our online store would look like the navigation where the logo type should be like the big hero picture and so on but the more clients we got within the same category like fashion the more we realized we have to make them very different they have to have their own tone and voice and it's easier if you work with brands that from the very beginning stands for something 
based on their deep interest of what they're selling. Even if personally, I'm not interested in a lot of my clients kind of niche products. It could be female fashion, for example. <laughs> but you can feel the passion when you meet the founders or the people working with it, that it's easy to convert that passion into a visual identity and a communication on site and content and how you should try to package that into something that when a consumer sees it, they understand it directly. So it's not just about let's make an online store and maximize the growth and revenue and money. It has other foundation based on almost a hobby. Yeah. What would happen if I can make a living on that hobby? And 20 years ago, no one really focused on e-commerce. But people who started at that time, some of them today are like category winners within their niche because they could grow. With the uh, technology. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that we see more and more is like, you can see like when you land on a website, I think to me it's all as a consumer and also because I come from physical retail, it's like in a physical store. Mm. When you come in, yeah, you should know where you are, which brand mm. you are in without seeing the logo, you know, just by the look and feel. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And I agree that some online stores, you know, are lagging behind on that mm. side. And of course, as soon as you get on the homepage, you yeah. are immersed in the, you know, environment and atmosphere and brand value that is very powerful. We see like, of course, a transaction, which is very transactional, like the one you describe on Price Run or like, okay, you want to buy this. Mm. It's just a transaction. You go on that website because it's the cheapest price and mm. then you just get the product and you don't even remember what online store you actually bought in. But brand that you describe are building more of an emotional connection and Around that came also the topic of the community that you talked about with sneaker and stuff. Yeah. So maybe on, on those lines, like to connect emotionally with your customers, to create this community, like have you seen any brands succeeding in that and how did they manage to bridge sometimes to bring the community? You have social media and then you mm. have the online store where it can tend to be more transactional. So how do you help brands find a balance? Yeah. If you take any subculture brand, I mean, any subculture, basically, the definition is, you know, they have their own kind of fan group yeah. and they build their own communities. And how they do that is usually a mix. I'm going to take Stasi, for example, a client that yeah. we work with. Today, they are a brand that is global, but from a brand recognition level, it could be way bigger, I think, if they wanted to. But they keep the supply down because they capitalize on their brand. It's like they're doing a mix of having collaborations and drops. Yep. So something is happening on a regular basis during the year, keeping the brand attractive, keeping the community alive. And it's not just a collab. It's like the brand of Stas has been built by multiple subculture verticals like surf, skate, contemporary fashion to streetwear, where they just able to dock in in all those verticals. And when they create a collab, there's a story behind that collab because they started to meet humans, basically, and start talking like we should do something together. And getting to the position where Stasi is today is something that is hard to force it. Mm -hmm. Even if you have the money, it wouldn't become like a sustainable subculture and community. You have to build it by pull. You cannot push it. So building community is much more about having a pool strategy. So if we have to start somewhere, maybe we should start with the product. 
it doesn't matter what the product is. It's just that there are so many different kind of products, but this specific product is so special. And that people that recognize that that product is so special, they automatically becomes like this small subculture thing. If you would try to build those communities by pushing, it would never happen. I would say why subculture foundation is so good for e-commerce is because subculture are small groups, but they're very often found in many countries. And it's super good fit for global e-commerce and do it in not to an expensive way. If you want to build a sustainable and profitable business over decades, it's maybe not the best business model. I would say like the big trend right now when the macroeconomic is down, the valuation goes down, investors are being a little bit more careful and banks as well. I think subculture business will just become stronger and stronger because if you have to decide like where you're going to put your money on food to survive, to live, <laughs> that, pay the rent, mortgage, stuff like that, Subculture business could maybe survive a little bit because you have a very strong emotional yeah. connection to the product and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, super interesting. But I think also on what you said, it also feels like the potential for like loyalty mm. on the subculture product that you describe is way higher. Is it something that you see on the data, actually? Oh, absolutely. The lifetime value of a subculture client can be a life. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. like the longest that you possibly could have, basically. <laughs> I'm curious, like, do you measure or see in some form like a correlation between engagement and community in social media and loyalty more like on a transactional value on the website? I mean, that's one question that I asked. One of our customers asked while, you know, who's like super strong and have like a very engaged community. And they're still also quite early, so it was hard for them to put numbers. But they say like, yeah, they have a feeling that community who is engaged on social media is actually also like actively purchasing and repeatedly purchasing from the website. So I'm just curious to hear like if you have any good example or if you have, if that has been an observation with your customers. No, I mean, I, I would say... When you do product releases, you can do basically in two ways. One is called first come, first serve. And that basically is like, I'm going to release this limited coffee cup like tomorrow at noon. And if you do the communication in the right way, maybe the subculture in the coffee community will just like go high bonkers, try to buy. Just those the site will crash. Yeah, right. The site will crash and everything. And... If you have an ability to do that over and over again, so you can do many drops over you know many years, yes, you have like hyper loyalty and with a super engagement. And when that in hype gets too big, like it's not just like people sleeping outside Web Hallam line of ten to hundred people, is millions of people like crashing the site including bots and everything. Mm. Then you usually see the other kind of product release, which is a raffle, because it is developed to make it more fair for everyone. Because not everyone maybe is in Swedish noontime by tomorrow awake. Mm -hmm. So some is doing like multiple time zone releases, like Supreme, for example, are doing different... Yeah in US and Europe and mm -hmm. Japan. But the thing with raffle is that you maybe have a week to sign up. 
and you make a financial commitment usually that if you're drawn as a winner, the money will be settled. But the feeling is that maybe it can be more fair because I have a week to sign up. Mm -hmm. I don't have to be yeah, on that yeah, specific yeah. noontime. Yeah. And it creates a lot of data to the brand or retailer that they see that, oh, it's 100,000 people that made a financial commitment to buy this coffee cup, but I only have 1,000 of them. So if I had 100,000 of them, I could make crazy amount of money. But if you supply to all of them, the magic would disappear. disappear and there's no second drop. Rolex was the, probably the one who invented that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so what Rolex and this probably coffee cup would have in common mm. is that there is actually a secondary market. Yeah. So as soon as a product has a secondary market, you can basically build a very strong pull marketing strategy with drops because even suddenly you reach a crowd that doesn't need to have a passion for what you're selling. They would just mm. buy your product for because production. they can make money on your product. And that has happened like with the luxury watches, luxury yeah. bags, sneakers, mm. but also on sneakers yeah, yeah. And, and everything. It's like a complete new business model. Let's like create a product and a business plan that has a secondary market potential. Like now, if you want to say that your brand is super hype and you say it's super hype, yeah, no one will really care. But if your brand, a brand new brand would be on the secondary market before you even are available for the normal retail price, maybe that strategy would validate that your brand is super hype before you even started. Yeah. So seeing, for example, how Carl Pay when he launched Nothing Headphones together with StockX, which is a big reseller market for streetwear and luxury goods, that means that if people are paying to buy the product for StockX, that is, oh, it's already hyped. He was hyped before it was in the retail. He's just, you know, ahead of the curve with that launch strategy. So I think if you look, would this strategy work on any kind of products? And I would say yes, because in the very beginning, the demand for Tesla was so high that they pretty much did a raffle. You had to sign up and made a financial commitment. Yeah, yeah. And if you did it, you could get a chance to buy a Tesla. And from what I heard, they got more signups in Sweden in two days than the whole car industry, all brands together, so, you know, yeah. sold in a year. Super interesting. But actually talking about scalability, I would like to hear you a bit on the operation side of e-commerce because of course, like, you know, building the brand and the product and what we call like the sexy part mm. is very, very important, of course. But if you want to scale your business, you seem to have like very strong operation and, and you and I had a discussion back then about you no know, brands who want to scale outside of Sweden because mm. Sweden is of course like a great test market, very innovative and early adopter. But if you want to grow your brand, you have to go abroad. Yeah. And many brands find challenges in scaling operations. Mm. 
when it comes to like logistics, payments and stock, you know, inventory management. But maybe can you share a little bit of your experience in this area and helping brands settle in, in Korea, which is one of your focus market? To start somewhere, I would say like have one KPI to integrate all your different parts of your organization. So the wholesale team, for example, the direct-to-consumer retail team and the PR marketing team, it doesn't really matter who does what as long as the brand search volume for your brand is increasing by month and country. So, for example, why I think a lot of fashion brands actually should have wholesale when they go global is because today you have infrastructure with Farfetch, Net-a-Porter, Mr. Porter and Yux, Matches Fashion, MyFerisa, Essence and and so on. So if you are an unknown brand outside Sweden but get into those platforms, they will validate your brand and quickly find customers around the world. If you take China, Korea and Japan, it's interesting because it's like three isolated e-commerce ecosystems. If you come from Sweden, which has most iPhones per capita in the world together with Switzerland, Europe and US is very streamlined with, you know, Google search ending to Instagram and, you know, and all those But suddenly, when you move Mm -hmm. to those three countries, they're not that dominating. So first, you will miss out those three markets. It's together maybe 65 to 70% of the global e-commerce market. So the wholesale is just one step. But for you to capitalize it direct to consumer, you need to adapt to those three local ecosystems. And why you want to start entering Korea before China and Japan is that the last years, the Korea has become the entertainment hub of APAC. So Korea is now producing all the music celebrities through K-pop, all the movie and drama stars with the Squid Game to Netflix, to Parasite and winning Oscars. Now it's going global. But the thing is, if you get Korean celebrities to validate you as a brand and as a trend, you can scale in all APAC. But if you scale in China or Japan, you don't go APAC. You stay there locally. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that Japan and China is not the trendsetter when it comes to fashion. Interesting, yeah. So, and the third thing is that Koreans as in their consumer behavior is that they're super happy to take risk. And even if Korea is just 50 million people, their e-commerce revenue 10 times Swedish e-commerce revenue. So their digital transformation is 100% more mature. And the vertical that is most mature is fashion. Mm. And then Koreans consumers, in a way, their subculture is price, I have to say it, because it's a price-sensitive market. 70% of the fashion revenue is controlled by local NK department stores. 
and they take about 30% commission as a mm. business model. Right, so yeah. that means that every fashion brand in Korea is about 30% more expensive so than the European or US retail price, which means it would be stupid for a consumer to pay that price if you can go to Netflix yeah. and save 30%. Yeah. And the fourth thing is that there's a free trade agreement between US and Korea and Europe and Korea. So that means that everything below $150 is without VAT and tax from yeah. Europe, but it's $200 without VAT and tax from US. And now comes the important data thing, because the first thing that I would do if someone like want to ask me to analyze their data in their online store, for APAC potential is that if you see a lot of traffic coming from Korea to your site, but the conversion is not good, you ask yourself, what's your shipping terms? Yeah, of because course. if your shipping volume is low to Korea, usually you compensate it by having a high shipping price or a threshold for free shipping. So just go like through a proxy and then go visit your site, see that and then change to the United States. And maybe suddenly most of Swedish e-commerce cross-border brands is shipping for free to US. So why would a Korean go to the site and ship it to Korea if they have to pay? Yeah. Secondly, why would they do that if they can ship it to US for free and freight forward from New York or LA up to three or four kilograms for $7 and also save $50 in import tax and VAT. So this is how Koreans has tricked the cross-border systems. I've seen so many times that a lot of Swedish stories like, there's so many Koreans, but like we just sell to US. Yeah, but because they ship to US and forward it to Korea. The traditional offline retail, their old school business model working almost like a license taker for many brands, has created a price disruption when it comes to cross-border e-commerce. And this is why Farfetch and Netaporter is like they capitalizing so much on. So basically, they just have the same brands at the local department stores, but it's just cheaper. Yeah. And that works for Korea. And that works for... And basically, the strategy would be for any brand that, like, get into those platforms, scale global through them, lose your gross margin, but build brand recognition because you probably don't have the same pool anyway or you don't have the money to build that. So you save money, you save time, you minimize risk, you find customers. But then again, when Net-a-Porter is selling out, maybe some consumers will find your online store. Yeah, and then you try to take those back. Yeah. And then you have to like think carefully how to navigate the wholesale and, and direct-to-consumer business. In the first season, we had the um, head of customer experience at Minto, actually. Yeah. You know, and I was asking her, like, okay, when does it make sense actually for a brand to, you know, start selling on Minto as a platform? And mm. she was saying that they see very good results for, like, very early-stage brands mm. because it helps them actually build, as you say, like, brand recognition and test the waters in different markets, but yeah. also for very established brands because their customers might actually not be looking for them on their own channels directly, yeah. but would actually find them out on the platform. And of course, then you have like all the logistics and all of that. You can have this sort of like sort at this for one part with the Absolutely. platform. But just maybe one one last question before we wrap up. I, I was wondering like, how does it come that the 
Korean market is so eager for, you know, European and like other brands is because the market itself is small. So there is a little bit of, I would say, lack, lack of offer, like local offer, or is it just because there is like some sort of very strong appeal from like European brand, like Scandi's type of design and all of that? It's connected to many years of history between, for example, Sweden and Korea. Sweden wasn't a part of the First or Second World War no. or Vietnam War, but we were engaged in the Korean War. We supported Korea with medical staff, military personnel, and so on. So the diplomatic relationship with Korea and Sweden is super close and good. So the brand Sweden has in Korea is very positive. And there is a romantic picture from Koreans to Sweden about Swedish lifestyle. The first wave of brands like IK, Volvo, H&M and so on, like they paved the wave. When they're buying those brands, they're using a part of the Scandinavian yeah, buying lifestyle. lifestyle. Yeah. yeah. And and I think this, this the second wave with Acne and Byredo and those kind of brands is is just created a brand mania, but it was not sales mania. It was yeah. hype on the brand but not everyone was buying it. And when when the country's economy is controlled by four companies that has 50% of the country's GDP, 80% of the profit, like Samsung, Hyundai, LG, yeah. those mega companies, their subsidiaries are the companies that are controlling these department stores. Yeah. So when you have staff there looking for brands to fill it with something exciting, and suddenly, like, there is a brand mania, not created by those mega companies, created about consumers finding different cross-border e-commerce stores and, like, creating parallel import. Like, the first big, like, local net apporteurs was run by the largest telecom company where they had, like, almost 100 people just uploading pictures from the Acne online store and Koreans went to that because it was a Korean language and Korean currency yeah. and Korean customer service. They placed an order and then the staff manually logged in to Acne Online Store, yeah, shipped it to a, a, a fulfillment yeah. warehouse and then shipped it to... So they bought for retail price, mm. but they added so much margin they could make a profit on it. And this SK Telecom company had 50% market share in Korea, so they can distribute marketing to half the Korean population and create revenue on upcoming brands super quickly. And suddenly, when there's some a mix of brand and sales mania, these big companies like start to understand, wait, we should grab that brand. And then they go and contact Acne and say, here's a PowerPoint, we are a subsidiary of Samsung, we have billions and billions and billions, we promised to open a flagship store and multiple department store, we will do this and this and that and that, and celebrities and PR and da-da-da-da-da. And they're like, where do I sign? Yeah. And and That's what, sorry, yeah. What, what has changed is that now Swedish fashion brands like Our Legacy is doing direct-to-consumer online, but they have an offline partner. Yeah. So like the, the traditional old companies, they, they like the parallel import, like with the people manually placing order, they're gone. Of course. Uh, the the second wave with like the department stores, the mega companies just getting license of everything. 
they're starting to lose it now. Mm. But because they own all the land, you need to partner with them to get the low, good location. Yeah. But you don't give the online business to them. And that's where we are right now. Interesting. What's going to happen for the next step after this, let's see what's going to happen. But you see, like, Koreans are, are a logo brand. That's why the, the celebrity marketing is working so good right now in Korea. And, like, they need instant fa- satisfaction. We call it pali pali. Like, it's like davai davai, yalla yalla. But, like, Koreans need to see a logo. They need to yeah. see, like, the Balenciaga, Tom Brown, Stasi. you know. They need to see... The acne is selling a lot of the face collection yeah. because you know it's, it's recognition. Yeah. So the thing is, like, you can sell something that has a design silhouette, so people by design understand, oh, it's that brand. But it's no, it's not like random circumstances why Totem scarf was their first hero product because it's just logos everywhere, mm. and it's. If you look at why Our Legs became so big in Korea, it's like one reason is they collab with Stasi. Stasi is already very famous. Stasi and Our Legs has a very strong brand recognition and it just explodes. And and I think if you know all these things, you start to understand like how Korean consumers actually is thinking. So it's very hard to take a Swedish minimalistic brand that is very popular here Mm-mm. or in the Nordics or Europe and go to Korea. While in Japan, you can actually enter with no logo yeah. in a complete different way. Mm-mm. But, you know, Japanese consumers are the polar opposite of consumers. So even if China, Japan and Korea are so close to each other, it's like a 50-minute flight between Shanghai, yeah. Seoul, yeah. Tokyo... Yeah. Like Germany and UK and France, I would say it's three countries with three different alphabets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even the shop sticks are different. But it's a yeah. bit like the US would look at Europe and think they can scale in Europe that they scale in the US. So. R- yeah, right. I think we, but then we do the same mistake as European, not looking at Asia. But I mean, yeah, I had my experience in China and I can definitely see the difference between Chinese and Korean and Japanese. And and now when we have this geopolitical scenario, you hear less and less about China when it comes to cross-border e-commerce yeah. and e-commerce because the geopolitical situation that started many years ago and now with the war and you see that Europe is isolating. We, we will create a lot of regulations about how to import products, fast fashion, transparency, yeah. production. Yeah. Like everything is coming now. So it's easy to see a future that is like the global world just disappeared and we're becoming like mm. more closed. But at the same time, I see this niche cross-border e-commerce is just exploding. Yeah, yeah, it is. So I really want to like still recommend to look into that and not get too stuck in this macroeconomic scenarios that almost make you forget about the cross-border potentials. Yeah, that's a great positive note. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) To wrap up, yeah, I mean, of course we see that and we also see with our customer that scaling outside of Sweden and Europe in general has like a lot of potential, but of course, like you need to have the operation and understand well the local markets. But uh, thank you very much, Munsek, for coming today. Yeah, thank if you, you have like anything to share, if you're hiring or any interesting news you want to share, now you can you can do that and then we, we will wrap up. Yeah, if you want to enter Korea, call me. <laughs> if you want to enter Japan, call me. We're working with a setup in, in China. Okay. 
we 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 strongly believe in other countries in APEC as well. Taiwan is a very big yeah. market, and Thailand and everything is opening up everywhere. But China is the next focus market. Yeah, so if you want to build something on Shopify, or if you want to build something headless on any platform, super happy to talk about that. Cool. Almost ready to say that I'm selling anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, but thank you very much for today, and I'll see you around. Thank you once again, Moonsuck, for joining us today. Your journey with Panagora is truly inspiring. Our conversation has touched on so many valuable topics to help direct-to-consumer brands grow in a sustainable and meaningful way. Your perspective on subculture and community engagement, going global quickly and navigating the nuances of cross-border e-commerce in the Asian market have been very informative and I'm sure that will help many of our listeners. And when it comes to subculture and community engagement, Unsuck emphasized the importance of fostering a sense of belonging and identity within these communities. So by engaging with your consumers on social media platforms and forging a genuine connection, your brand can actually expand its reach and attract like-minded individuals. However, this requires consistent effort and sincere interactions with customers to drive loyalty and support. And his thoughts on going global quickly resonated strongly, particularly for small direct-to-consumer startups that may initially face limitation in their expansion efforts. So by leveraging the right technologies and the power of communities, smaller brands have caught out a distinct niche for themselves, have a very, very good potential for success. So recognizing the value of a passionate, engaged customer base in driving growth is very crucial. So we also explore the significance of understanding the APAC region and its unique culture and shopping nuances for direct-to-consumer brands looking to enter this area. So Moonsuck highlighted the need for personalized experiences when expanding into markets like Korea and Asia as a whole. But he also emphasized how effective operational management, including inventory, returns and logistics, is vital to support sustainable success in these markets. So in conclusion, this episode has been a treasure trove of insights, offering guidance to brands aiming to thrive in today's competitive landscape, leading with passion, cultivating a niche, investing in genuine customer interaction, and community building are very important factors to keep in mind while building your brand. But on top of that, it's also very important to point out that creating personalized experience and harnessing technology are key pillars for driving success and achieving sustainable growth. So thank you so much for listening. We hope this episode has been insightful and will have a positive impact on your direct-to-consumer growth aspirations. We'll see you in a couple of weeks with another great episode lined up. Have a good one.